If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We will be continuing on as we uh, study the book of Hebrews, which we started last week. If you were not here last week, uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon uh, that Pastor Aaron delivered. Uh, he did an excellent job um, of, of handling the text, uh, but man, just an excellent job of presenting the gospel uh, as, uh, as it is truly and rightly in God's word. And so if you, if you missed that, um, you missed out, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that as he introduced us to this book, uh, the book of Hebrews, verses 1 through 4. So today we will be looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. But before we begin, I want to start us off this week by talking about none other than jolly old St. Nicholas. That might seem like a, a weird place to start here in the month of May as uh, we are starting to enjoy the warm weather as noted by the fact that it's a little warm in here. You know, we're still figuring out AC versus heat. Uh, thankfully, Ian got the fans turned on for us. Praise God for, uh, for that. Uh, but I bring our attention today to the story of one Mr. St. Nicholas uh, for a specific reason. Now, when I talk about St. Nicholas, you might be thinking of Santa Claus, uh, but as many of you might also know, St. Nicholas, who was the kind of origin story of Santa Claus, the, the legend that surrounded this saint, this Christian from, from so long ago in the early church, did develop into what we now know as the legend of Santa Claus. But St. Nicholas was an actual person. St. Nick was a real man, and he was a great man. He was born in A.D. 270 in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. He knew Christ from a very young age and uh, was ordained to ministry, became a bishop, and then eventually, or became a priest, and then eventually became bishop in Myra in 317 A.D. He was uh, kind of the inspiration for the legend of Santa Claus because of a story that was once told about him when he, he met a man who was very poor. In fact, he was so poor that he was unable to buy his children shoes, uh, and they desperately needed shoes, but he was so poor he was unable to. And so St. Nicholas took it upon himself, as the story goes, uh, to sneak into this man, this family's home in the middle of the night and leave purses full of gold coins so that this man could provide for his family these gifts that were left in the middle of the night as he snuck in and did that. That was kind of what developed the uh, what we now know to, today to be the story of Santa Claus, how Santa Claus comes on Christmas Eve, comes down the chimney, essentially sneaking into your house and, uh, and leaving gifts. This is the origin of that story, and it's a really neat story, and I think uh, something to be admired of, of St. Nicholas. However, there is a story that is, is slightly less known about St. Nicholas, but one that I think is far more entertaining and far more fun, and that is about what happened uh, in A.D. 325. If you're unfamiliar with that date, uh, then you probably haven't taken a church history class, and that's not surprising. Uh, but A.D. 325 was the date of the Council of Nicaea. And at the Council of Nicaea, uh, which St. Nicholas was present at, uh, the council was meeting to defend the doctrine of Christ, to defend a right understanding of Christology against the Arians. They, uh, specifically, a guy named Arius who was claiming that Christ was not God. He was denying the deity of Christ. And so the church council was 
uh, was called in order to convene and settle this issue once and for all regarding Christ and his deity. And in the midst of the debate and in the midst of the arguing, St. Nicholas, so committed, so convinced about the deity of Christ, not only convinced about the deity of Christ, but that it was so necessary to the gospel that he, in the middle of this debate, goes up and punches Arius right in the face. Either a punch or a slap, I don't know, uh, but either way, it doesn't matter. He, He hit the dude, absolutely smoked him. Not exactly the picture of Santa Claus that we uh, tell our kids, I don't think, but I would argue a much cooler picture of Santa Claus. All of this, this whole council, the anger that St. Nicholas felt, it was over the doctrine of Christ, specifically Christ's deity. And I bring this story up because the doctrine of Christ, or Christology, is the topic that we have for consideration before us today in our text. And I would uh, encourage you to consider why it is that jolly old St. Nicholas, the original Santa Claus, uh, felt the need uh, to take violent action. Not that I would ever condone violent action against heretics, um, but it is a cool story nonetheless. I think it's better than inaction, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, I better stop, though. Let's read our text today. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 or 4 through 14, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will, wear out, they will wear, all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Lord God, as we are presented with your word today, as the author of Hebrews has, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written down for us, Lord, I pray that we would understand these truths clearly, rightly. I pray today that our understanding of who Christ is would be brought into fuller view, that we would be given clarity, and it it would drive us to worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This book that we have before us, and specifically today, this text that we have before us, is one that, as we first read it, and perhaps if you've read the book of Hebrews, you might read it and think, okay, I get it. Christ is great, greater than angels. 
and move on to chapter 2. For it seems, at least at first glance, that this text is pretty straightforward, pretty cut and dry, uh, and to an extent maybe even somewhat boring. But I would argue that, uh, as John MacArthur describes this section, that it is much like an iceberg, that if you see an iceberg in the ocean, you see only a portion of the iceberg poking out of the water, but yet what is lurking beneath the water is oftentimes a great mass uh, that is simply unseen. And I think when you begin to study this text, when you begin to read and dig down deep into Hebrews chapter 1, you begin to see all of the theology, all of the importance, all of the significance that is tied up, wrapped up in this chapter, in these verses here before us today. And if there was ever a verse that, uh, as a new pastor, I've been intimidated as I have begun my study, this is, this is certainly one of them. For there is so much in this chapter. There's so much in verses 4 through verses 14. In fact, in this section alone, we have demonstrated such, such doctrines as the deity of Christ, the authority of Christ, the justice of Christ, his creating work, his immutability, the eternality of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ, just to name some of the doctrines of Christ that are presented to us in this text. I don't know why Aaron decided not to preach the whole text last week as I originally told him to do. I guess it was just a little bit more than he could bite off and chew. It makes sense. I want to get into these various theological concepts that we just listed. We're going to get into some of them in a minute. But first, I think it would be helpful for us to talk a little bit about why the author of Hebrews is doing what he is doing, why he is dedicating so much time at the beginning of his letter to such a deep Christology, a deep study of the doctrines of Christ. And I would remind you again, you'll, you'll notice I don't say uh, any name, or I'm going to try not to say any name, uh, of who the author of Hebrews is because uh, the book of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, opted not to give us a name. We have no name dedicated to this book. There, uh, as Aaron said last week, are many people who would say that it was Paul. There are some who would say it was Apollos. There are some who would say it was a whole list of other people. Uh, but the bottom line is God has chosen not to reveal to us who the author is, and therefore I'm content to just say that uh, the author is the author of Hebrews and leave it at that, for that is all Scripture gives us. But I want to sit down. I want us to look and see and try to understand and think for just a minute on why it is that the author would take such depth, take such pains at the beginning of his book in order to establish a deep, firm, foundational, rooted in the Old Testament Christology. And there are th various reasons why this would be so. I would present to us a few reasons. For one, Christology has always been one of the most attacked doctrines throughout history. In fact, if you just think about the ancient church councils, we've talked about one a little bit already, and we'll talk about it more later, the Council of Nicaea. All of these church councils met to discuss and to establish true doctrine in the face of heresy, in the face of errant doctrine, and almost every single time, it's centered around the doctrine of Christ. There has never been a doctrine throughout history more attacked than the doctrines of Christ. And even today, every year around Easter, if not me or whoever's preaching here or preaching at whatever church that you happen to be at, it's likely going to be mentioned that even today, the doctrine of Christ is still under attack, that he is not 
Christ, that he is not the son of God, or that he was not fully human, or that he was not raised from the dead. The doctrine of Christ is still, to this day, as it was throughout history, one of the most attacked doctrines that the church has ever known, and therefore the need to establish good Christology is essential, and the author of Hebrews knows this. Another reason was that the letter was written to a Jewish audience who probably had mixed up views about angels. You'll notice in our text today that what is primarily the discussion is Jesus as compared to angels. There were uh, many Jews in the time, especially certain Messianic Jews who had very high view of angels. They had a very um, elaborate kind of teaching and doctrines and, and uh, writings surrounding angels, writings that extended far beyond that of Scripture, where they developed all of these kinds of understandings of angelology or study of angels. And there were many cases in which that extended beyond just angels as created beings who were created to serve God, but even began to move in some cases into worship of angels or setting them upon a, a, a platform higher than what they belong. And so that could very well and likely is another reason why the author of Hebrews spends so much time talking about Christology. Another reason is that the author's main purpose throughout this book, throughout the entirety of the book of Hebrews, is to convey the truth that Christ is the true mediator of a new and better covenant. That is the, the point, essentially, of almost the whole book of Hebrews, that there is a new and better covenant than that that was known in the Old Testament of the saints of old, that there is a new and better covenant, and that Christ is the one who is the mediator, who is the fulfillment of this covenant. We see this all throughout the text, but because of this, it would be important that the author dedicate a considerable amount of time establishing this foundation, the foundation of Christ as God, as the one who has come to bring and to mediate the new and the better covenant. Many commentators are convinced that misconceptions about angels, perhaps even the practice of worshiping angels, is a good possible explanation for why he so thoroughly sets up Christ in our chapter today as being superior to angels. For indeed, that is primarily what he does as he spends the second two-thirds of this chapter committing it to pointing out that Christ is greater than angels. And many, uh, many would say it's because of the misconceptions that existed in, in Judaism at that time, and that may very well be. But even if that misconception were not there, even if that is not what's in view here, it still can be understood that this argument presents the readers with an insurmountable demonstration of Christ's power and Christ's deity. Regardless of the background, regardless of the history, regardless of the context of the Jews to which the author was writing, this is a foundation that needs to be established. Christ's power, Christ's deity, his authority, his eternality. The argument that the author presents here in chapter one in our text today, it goes something like this. A, angels are very high and powerful beings, much higher than we are. And this is a true statement. You don't have to know all that much about angels to agree with this statement, that angels are great and high and powerful beings, that they are much more powerful than we are. Think of almost any story of an angel 
And you will think, wow, they are powerful, at least more than we are. They are spiritual beings. They are created by God, and except for those who have fallen, they are without sin. They are perfect. They are holy. So there's A. Angels are high. They are powerful. They are much higher than we are. The second point that is made, B, we'll call it, is the assertion that Christ is much greater than they are as demonstrated by X, Y, and Z in our text today, that Christ is greater than angels, which we will see. Therefore, the conclusion C, given the examples shown through the Old Testament scriptures, as the author of Hebrews presents, Christ is supreme, is superior in every way, and he is so because he is God. He is God in the flesh. This is the only logical conclusion from the premises that are presented, from the arguments that are made, is that angels are very high, Christ is higher than angels. The only explanation for that is that he is God. So to make sure that we understand the argument that is presented here, I want us to take some time and consider the greatness of angels as Scripture presents them. For indeed, Scripture in various occasions, at various times and places, presents pictures of just how powerful, how great angels are. We see the angels are described in Psalm 103, verse 20, as mighty ones who do God's word. They are described as mighty, as powerful, powerful enough to effectively carry out God's bidding. We see also that they have great power, which is why Paul warns so strongly for the need for strength in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Clearly, Paul here is talking about that of fallen angels. But nonetheless, we see the point that he's making, that angels, whether fallen or not, have great power. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. For indeed, if we wrestled against flesh and blood, we would not need so much help. We would not need so much power. For flesh and blood does not pale in comparison to the power of the demonic forces that we are actually up against. These fallen angels, angelic beings, they are powerful. In fact, angels were so powerful that, uh, that they are, in most cases, presented as terrifying, as frightening, as evoking fear, causing people to tremble. In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, at Jesus' resurrection, we see this in Matthew 28, verses 3 and 4. Matthew says, His appearance, speaking of the angel, was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. At the mere appearance of this angel, these guards, these Roman guards, the manliest of manly men that you would have found in that day passed out due to fear because of the mere appearance of this angelic being. They were so powerful, so terrifying that this is not an uncommon reaction to be struck with fear and awe, which is why, what did they often say when they would appear? Do not be afraid because fear is a natural reaction when you would see an angel. And remember also, perhaps one of the most one of the most telling things of the angels' greatness is that angels are able, that, that non-fallen angels, to be clear, are able to be in the throne room of God and withstand exposure to his 
awesome holiness. Though we look forward to that day when we're able to stand in his presence, that day is not yet for us. For indeed, now we are much lower than angels. But angels are so upright, so great, so in fact holy, that they are able to stand in the presence of God and not be destroyed. That alone ought to cause us to go, wow, these are some high and great beings that are being discussed here in the book of Hebrews. And as we begin to understand the greatness of angels, of these beings that are being discussed, we then begin to feel the impact of the argument that the writer is making as he unpacks all the ways in which Christ is greater than even these great beings, these angels. And let's look at how he does this. Look at verse 5 and 6 where he starts us off. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, or today I have begotten you? Or again, I will say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The question that he asks is a rhetorical question, one that says, who has ever this ever been said of? Which did God ever call his son and ascribe to him deity? And the obvious answer to this rhetorical question is none. To none of the angels and about none of the angels has this ever been said, that they are his son, his only begotten that he is to him a father, and he is his son. There is only one to which this title has ever been described, and verse 4 tells us that this is a name, this is a title that he has inherited that is far more excellent than theirs, the title of Son of God. There is no other conclusion for what is being expressed here from, this, from these Old Testament quotes than that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is deity, that he is one with the Father. One commentator notes that Christ had a fourfold right to this title, the title of Son of God, a title given to no one else. This fourfold right consisted of one, that he was uh, generated from God, his eternal generation, that he was begotten of God, begotten, not made. Two, by commission, as he was sent by God. Three, he received the title of Son of God by resurrection as the firstborn of the dead. And then finally, four, by actual possession as heir of all, that Christ is the heir of all things, and that all things will be given to him, for he is the rightful heir. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of God, the one who is one with the Father. We see here also in this verse, verse 5, a very important word, a word that I think we oftentimes don't give enough attention, that word begotten. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is one of those words that we have perhaps heard. If you are familiar with certain versions of John 3.16, you will be very familiar with this word. That God sent his only begotten son. What does this word, though, begotten mean because if you're like me you might have spent years much of your life knowing the word knowing that Jesus is the only begotten son of God but never giving any thought to what the word begotten means I know that was the case for me for a long long time 
But the word begotten actually has great significance. The word begotten is used because it is a word that conveys a different idea than anything else, that he was not simply born, that he was not simply made, that he was not a created being, that he was begotten, meaning that he was of the same essence, of the same substance as God the Father. That God the Son is not of a different kind, is not of a different substance, is not of a different nature than God, but he is one with the Father, begotten. C.S. Lewis uh, gives us a, a sort of example of what it means to be begotten. And this is a limited example, and I recognize that, but I think it can help us to, to understand the distinction between made and begotten. And he does refer to earthly birth. That a person gives birth to a son, but a son is not made. My wife is pregnant with our, our third child, with our first daughter, and we're super excited about that. But that daughter has not been made by myself or by Kaylee. But there is a sense in which, sense in which that child is begotten, in which that child shares in our DNA, because that is our child, that we did not make the child in the sense of one would make a cake or make uh, a piece of pottery, but this child was begotten in a way that is unique, but in a way that, that holds a part of us. In a much grander and greater way is Jesus begotten. C.S. Lewis makes the point that beavers beget beavers, that birds beget birds, dog, dogs beget dogs, humans beget humans, God begets God. That Jesus is one with the Father of the same substance. Now this gets to the heart at what was the issue at the Council of Nicaea, as I mentioned previously. This council where good old St. Nicholas punched Arius. This was the issue at stake, the issue of whether or not Christ was of the same substance as God. Was he deity? Or was he simply a very highly exalted created being? This was the claim of the Arians, of Arius and his followers. They were not saying that Jesus was a nobody. They were not saying that he did not hold a great status. They are not saying that the Bible is not true. Rather, what they were saying that Christ, though highly exalted, though great even among the angels, is a created being. That he is of a different, of a lesser substance than God. This flies directly in the face of what we see all throughout the New Testament. But if nothing else, just a few verses earlier, as uh, Aaron preached last week in verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and what? The exact imprint of his nature. That Jesus is of the exact same nature, the exact same substance of God, and this is what the Council of Nicaea ultimately affirmed in the Nicene Creed on the section on Christ, they were very specific in how they declared that this Arian controversy, that this heresy was false and that Christ was God when they said it this way. This is what the Nicene Creed says on Christ. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, only begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, Begotten, not made, they threw it in there one more time just to kind of rub it in the face of the Arians, of one substance with the Father through whom all things were made. This is the correct understanding 
of Christology, that Jesus Christ was the only begotten of the Father, true God of true God, begotten, not made. Christ is not a created being. No matter how highly you claim his creation to be, he is one with the Father of the same nature and of the same essence and same substance. It is of this Jesus that verse 6 goes on and says, let all God's angels worship him. The only reason why Christ has any right to be worshipped by the angels or by any of us is why? Not because he is a great, highly exalted creation, for no created being deserves our worship, not even the angels. Christ deserves our worship and the worship of the angels, and he receives it because he is God. Now remember, this is a comparison between Jesus and angels. Jesus has been established now as the Son of God, begotten, not made. What is true of angels then? Well, verse 7 sets the record straight on what is true of angels. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers of a flame of fire. What does that word minister mean? That's another version of the word servant. We see here from verse 7, that angels are servants of God, servants and nothing more. That is not to degrade the role of a servant of God, of minister. In fact, uh, the role of deacon that we recognize here in the church means servant. And the Bible tells us that the role of deacon is one that is a high, high role. It is an important role. It is one to be given not to just anyone, but only those who have been set apart and established as faithful, good examples of Christ's likeness. So this is not to say that being a minister of God, a servant of God, is some sort of terrible position, but it is to say that it is not to be God. That you do not deserve worship because you are a servant of God, but you simply do his being, his bidding. This is what is true of angels, that they are servants and nothing more. Not so of Jesus, as verse 8 goes on to tell us, but of the Son, that being Christ, he says, Your throne is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your, your, your companions. So we have established for us Christ's deity, now, here, the writer points us to the authority and the dominion that belongs to Christ and gives us a picture of his kind of rule that is established, that Christ's reign, his rule, his one, the first of all, never ends, as verse 8 says, that his throne is forever and ever, that his is an everlasting kingdom. We've seen some great and powerful kingdoms, some great and powerful empires come and go throughout the history of the world. We have seen great empires rise and fall. Empires that at the time seemed untouchable, that took over so much space, that seemed to have so much reach, that seemed so great and so powerful, and yet every single one of them has come to an end. Not a single earthly kingdom has managed to stand the test of time, even for a fraction of the time of history. 
but Christ's kingdom is one unlike any earthly kingdom and that his kingdom is one that stands forever and ever and ever. It is a kingdom that is worth having a membership in and one that we can have confidence in. For it will never go under. It will never be sunk. It will never be done away with. We see also of Christ's kingdom, of his reign, of his rule, that it is one that is just. As we see in verse 9 where he says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This is a good declaration. This is a good thing to know that Christ's rule is one that loves righteousness and hates wickedness. But at the same time, this ought to cause us to pause. It ought to cause us to pause because of what we talked about in our confession today. Because if it's true that he loves righteousness and hates wickedness, where do we land? Are we righteous or are we wicked? On our own, we are wicked, are we not? In and of ourselves, we are wicked. Our flesh is wicked. Apart from Christ, we are wicked. And what will be done with the wicked, with the evildoers? They will be cast into utter darkness. This is a just and right rule and reign of Christ. And yet we know that his love of righteousness and hatred of wickedness, his justice, that even in that we can find a place in his kingdom. How can we? Not by our own strength, not by our own works, not by our own good deeds, not by anything that we can do to earn Christ's favor, to earn righteousness, but because he has granted it to us freely, just as Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, so those of us who believe will be counted as righteous because we have believed in the one true Son of God. Only by faith in Jesus Christ can we be declared righteous. Only by faith in him and union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection can we be found in a just rule like this, one that loves righteousness and hates wickedness. God is both just and the justifier in this. The writer piles on even more and more. This is what's amazing about this passage. Look at this. We're like halfway through. And the writer's not done. The author is not done piling on, telling us about the greatness of Christ. He says in verses 10 through 12, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. We see here in verse 10, the truth that we heard from Aaron last week, the same truth that is echoed in John chapter one, Colossians chapter one, the truth that Christ is not only present at the time of creation, but the truth that he is the agent of creation, that without him was not anything made that was made, as John says. This matters. This matters because it points us to the power and the authority that Christ has. It speaks to his divine power because remember, how were things created in the beginning? Not the same way we create things today. When we create things, we can be creative. You can be creative and, and make something, right? I can make a wooden sculpture with knives and sculpting tools, but I can only do it if I am given wood to make it with, right? Christ, the creator of all things, created how? Ex nihilo. Thank you, Aaron. Ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. 
that at the beginning there was nothing. There were no materials to be gathered and molded into the earth and the heavens. There was nothing. And yet by the word of his power, God spoke, and by Christ, all things came into existence, the heavens and the earth. This is an amazing, amazing power that God has. And that as we see in our text here is true of Christ. Why? Because he's of the same nature and of the same essence and of the same substance as God the Father. Verse 11 and 12 go on to teach us that Christ, being God, is eternal and immutable. Which, if you've come to our theology class, you'll know that the word immutable means he is unchanging. That he has not changed, nor will he ever change, nor can he be changed. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is in contrast in our passage here to the heavens and the earth which he created, which will wear out, which will grow old, which will, like old clothes, be done away with, as he says. He says, like an old garment they will wear out, like a garment they will be changed, that like a robe he will roll them up. This reminds me of if you've ever had like a favorite pair of jeans or maybe a favorite t-shirt or a favorite hoodie. Maybe growing up you had that one pair of jeans that you just loved and you wore all the time and you wore everywhere. And then eventually one day what happens? Well, either you get too big and you can't wear them anymore or they wear out. You can't wear them anymore. They've got, they're, they're more skin than shirt at a certain point, right? I remember my wife had a, a pair of flip-flops that she owned for like 10 years. She loved this pair of flip-flops, Nike flip-flops, and you know how these things go, they don't make them anymore. And my wife wore those things and wore those things and wore those things, and then they broke. I tried to fix them, glued them together, they lasted like another two weeks, and then they broke again, even worse. I said, I'm sorry, Kaylee, they're toast. And I swear to you, there was a time of mourning over those shoes. Those shoes never made it to the trash can for the next like a month. They sat in our living room. And she would walk by him and she would look and she'd go. Like she was just hoping maybe in his, his power, the Lord would resurrect these shoes, these sandals, and that she'd be able to wear them again. And she was just hanging on to her prayer. But they never did. Because why? They were not designed to last. They are material. They are transient. They are not lasting. But unlike these flip-flops, unlike our uh, clothes that wear out, Christ's Christ is eternal. He is everlasting. Not only is he eternal, but he stays the same forever. He is like the pair of flip-flops that never wears out and the flip-flops that rule and reign over all everything. He is above all and in all. He is everlasting. He is immutable. He will not change. And we can take great comfort in that. We are fickle people. We live in a fickle world. And there is very little stability to be found in this world. But in Christ, there is stability for he is our rock. Finally, we see in verse 13, the exaltation of Christ above all else. To which of the angels, the writer asks, has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy a footstool for your feet? The rhetorical question has an obvious answer, none. None of the angels have ever been given this place of dominion, this place of authority. I've had all things put in subjection under their feet. Only Christ has, because he is far greater than the angels. He is far above them. He is no mere created being, but
but he is the God of the universe. The angels are simply ministering spirits, as he says in verse 7 and then again in verse 14. Ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That is us. Again, we are not to think that angels are dumb or that angels are useless or that they mean nothing because they pale in comparison to Christ. All created beings pale in comparison to Christ. Their function is still valuable, is still useful, is useful for us who are receiving the benefits of their ministering as they have been sent out by God to minister to us, those of us who are in Christ, who are to inherit salvation. But yet the conclusion of our chapter today, of our text, is Christ is far greater. This chapter makes me think about the great question that Jesus asked Peter when he said, who do you say that I am? Peter gives a great answer to that question, by the way. I'll let you look that up on your own. You can find that in the Gospels. But that truly is the foundational question. And it is the question that receives full attention in the book of Hebrews here today, starting with this beautiful section in this first chapter. Who is Jesus, we might ask? The chapter tells us that he is the son of God, that he is begotten, not made, that he is of the same substance as the father, true God of true God, ruler on the throne who rules with justice and righteousness. He is the creator of heaven and earth, unchanging and unchangeable, eternal, exalted king. Just to name a few. All of this and more from this one chapter why does this matter so much? What do we do with this truth of who Christ is? Well, first of all, this truth helps us to know who Christ is. For we cannot truly worship Christ unless we properly know him. We cannot worship Christ truly, worship him properly unless we know him truly. And the more that we know of Christ, the more we see of who he is, the greater our worship will be the more awe, the more amazement we stand in his greatness and in his magnitude. But also, the more that we soak this in, the greater the impact will be when we come to the next chapter where we see the declaration that this Jesus, this Christ, the Son who was all these things, true God of true God, eternal, exalted King, ruler, Son of God, begotten, not made, this Christ was made lower than angels. We have just established in this whole chapter, this treatise, this argument saying Christ is greater. Christ is higher than angels. And in the very next chapter, what are we going to see? He was for a time made lower than angels. That ought to blow our minds. And I hope that we do, it does as we come to that next chapter next week. But this is the reality for us as we study the book of Hebrews and we see that the old covenant that was given by angels, that was given uh, by God, has found a greater and complete fulfillment in the new covenant, the new covenant mediated by Jesus Christ. For indeed, the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament was to be the best in the flock, the one without blemish, without stain, without spot, 
You were not to take the worst of your sheep or even the most mediocre sheep. You were to take the greatest of your flock, the most perfect one that you could find to the point that they would even flip the eyelids inside out to see if there was any spot or blemish under the eyelids of the sacrificial lamb. This was the sacrifice because the sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be right. But what was the problem? Is that none of those sheep, as perfect, as spotless as they were, none of those rams, none of those goats, were ever a perfect sacrifice. In complete fulfillment of what was required by God, Christ became to be that sacrificial lamb. The only true and perfect sacrifice, the one far greater than any of the angels, far greater than any sacrifice that had ever come before, the one who would bring with him the new covenant, the one who would mediate. It is because of his death as our sacrificial lamb, perfect and spotless, that we can now be a part of his kingdom in which he hates wickedness and loves righteousness. We can stand only because he is the righteous lamb who was slain for us to grant us, to impute to us his righteousness and take our wickedness on the cross. It is in that that we rejoice today. That this God, so highly exalted above the angels, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is true only by faith in him. I pray that this would be true of you in here today. It would be foolish of me to think that I'm speaking to a room exclusively of believers, exclusively of those who know Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So I would encourage you, if you do, rejoice in that. Take heart in that. Take hope in that, in his unchanging eternal goodness. If you are not in here today, just know that his reign, his rule is not one that tolerates wickedness. If you are separated from Christ, then you are left in your wickedness. But you don't have to be. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, his righteousness is available. And we are granted to take hold of it by faith in him. We don't have to do anything to take hold of his grace, to take hold of his righteousness. We merely have to trust in him. Let's pray.